Awesome. All right. Well, can we pray together and then we will jump into the scripture. We're going to read Exodus 14, um, verses, chapter 14, verses 1 through 31. So we'll pray, we'll read that, and then we'll jump into the topic today. We join me in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Um, we see it in our own lives, we see it in this story, that your entire purpose is to prove to this world that has gone blind how to see again, to restore sight. We live our lives thinking that you are a secondary reality. And our relationships and our careers and all of this stuff is the primary reality. When in truth, it's the exact opposite. You alone are what is real. You alone. And we become more real the more we look to you and we become less real the more we look away. You know each heart here, you know each person's sorrows, you know their stories better than they know them. You know what brings them joy, you know where they've been really hurt and where they're really hurt today. I would ask Lord that you would just speak to them, speak to them individually, speak to this church body be at the center of everything, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We praise you. Be glorified today. Amen. All right, so we are in Exodus 14, um, and we're going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 31. So if you have a smartphone or your Bible, you're going to pull that out. If not, we're going to put it up here. And this is how it reads. And the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites... Turn back and encamp near Pi-Hiroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord." So the Israelites did this. Now when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, <laughs> Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and he took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them, and they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt? You brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, just leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, 
you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. (laughs) Yeah, very humorous. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew, went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and it turned into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. And during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army, and he threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians, their chariots and horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So if you're joining us for the first time, we're calling this series on the book of Exodus, The Paradigm. And the reason why we're calling it The Paradigm is because it is our contention that in this story, the Exodus, we find a world which is in fact my world and your world. We find a story that is your story. That the way we see God acting here, the way we see the characters interacting here, in fact, any person from any age anywhere could read this story and be like, oh my gosh, this is my story. This is what's happening right now where I live. And last week we talked about the plagues that God levied upon the Egyptians that culminated in the death of the firstborn. And I don't know if you knew this because I don't think I told you, so how could you know? But the title of last week's sermon was Salvation Part One. Salvation Part One, which obviously means if there was a part one, then there's gotta be a part two. And some of you are like, wait, how can there be two parts? Can you be saved twice? If you grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition, yeah, you were saved many times. I can't tell you how many youth groups I show up and the preacher starts talking about hell. And I'm just like, oh, at the end is like, who wants to get saved? I do, I do not wanna go there. And then first grade happens and Bobby was being mean to me. And then I show up the next week and they're talking about hell. Who needs to get saved? Right here, right here, preacher. 
I think that altar calls and getting saved are to Southern Baptists what like mass is for Catholics. We just got to take it over and over and over. But yes, my contention is salvation is a little bit of a process. It's not enough. If you remember from last week, when, uh, when the destroyer comes and he wipes out the firstborn, both people and animals, what saved the Israelites was the blood of the lamb over their doorframe. It's not enough to put the blood over the doorframe. The journey continues because Israel is not yet Yahweh's fully. Salvation is a process. And before we sort of jump into today's text, I need to make one point because I think this is a good part of the story um, to clarify. Exodus is not primarily a story of liberation, but of salvation. Now, I know that might confuse you for a second, so go with me, okay? Exodus has been used um, and is used uh, by a branch of theology called liberation theology, of which I am a huge sympathizer. I love Gustavo Gutierrez from Peru, Leonardo Ball from Brazil. Liberation theology over the last hundred years has pointed out some glowing or glaring deficiencies in some parts of our Western theology. But sometimes the implicit view of liberation theology and of Exodus is that God simply wants to emancipate Israel. And that's it. That's not at all what this story is about. Yes, yes, this story is about opposing dehumanization and opposing uh, social, political, economic situations that dehumanize and enslave. Yes to all of that, but not for the purpose of then, once you're emancipated and liberated, to be sort of self-determining, autonomous beings. And here's what I mean. Uh, there's a, a early on in Exodus, Exodus chapter one. Oh, I'm sorry, no, no, no. Yahweh is not liberating to be self-determining. He's liberating Israel so that they may worship me. He's liberating Israel so that they may worship me. So in Exodus one, there's this phrase, this sort of this context statement. And I left in the Hebrew word to sort of get at an idea, okay? So this is how it reads. So Egypt, Avodu, the children of Israel in slavery. They embittered their lives with severe avodah and loam and in bricks and with all kinds of avodah in the field and all kinds of avodatum, which they avodu with harsh slavery. So you might see that word avad is very present here. The word avad in Hebrew means to serve or to be enslaved to. It has a range, a spectrum of meaning, but at its essence, to be an avad is to have a master. It's to not be your own autonomous being. And why that's important is because Egypt is making avads out of Israel. Israel is enslaved to Egypt, but just a couple chapters later, when God's talking to Moses, he says this in Exodus 3. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you all will avodun God on this mountain. It's the same word. It's the same word used for Israel when they were in Egypt and God saying it's gonna be the same thing with me. Same word, but a different understanding. 
Humans are not self-determinant. We will avoid something. We will serve something. Now, what you see in this story is a change of master. When Israel was in Egypt, they were avods to Egypt, and Egypt treated them like crap and made their lives terrible. And then when they are liberated, when they are saved, they become avods of Yahweh, and Yahweh treats them more like children, sons and daughters. But the point is that freedom is not the loss of your identity as an avad. You will have a master. You will have a master. And if it's not Egypt, or if it's not Yahweh, it might be yourself, right? That's the American dream, I'm my own master. We see that that's actually not as pleasant as it sounds on the outset. And you even see this in the New Testament, Paul in Romans 6, and we'll come back to this. He's talking to those who have put their faith in Jesus, and he says, being set free from sin, you have been enslaved to righteousness. Interesting, you have been set free from the sinful nature, And now he says, you are enslaved to righteousness, to God. And he uses the same word, duleo, which is the Greek equivalent of avad. You become a slave. And for anyone who's not a Christian here, um, one of my favorite quotes, and I've definitely used this before, is David Foster Wallace from his, uh, um, his address to Kenyon College, his commencement address. And in the middle of it, this is what he says. In the day to day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping, not being an avad. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you avad will eat you alive. And I think many of us have stories of that, right? Addictions or career choices where we're worshiping ourselves, or we're worshiping the almighty dollar or we're worshiping what, whatever. We are avoiding that, we are pursuing that and we get to the end of the road and we realize how grossly unsatisfying it is. And the entire point of this story that is that Israel is not being liberated from Egyptian oppression because God hates injustice. Go with me. Israel is not being liberated from Egyptian oppression because God hates injustice. Rather, God hates injustice because injustice keeps both Israel and Egypt from worshiping him. Unjust unjust situations, unjust systems keep both the oppressor and the oppressed from recognizing their true identity as avads to the living God. And being an avad to a God who's actually says, I'm more like a father and you're more like my child and there's a seat for you at the table. You're not self-determining. You didn't create yourself. You need a master. You need someone to tell you which way to go. And the only one who can do that and do that well and not eat you alive is the one who actually made you. So that's important to realize that this is not just a story of liberation. It's a story of salvation. So if that was salvation part one last week with the blood over the door frame, so this week with walking through the Red Sea is salvation part two. And it starts with an interesting detail. God makes the Israelites turn back. I don't know if you caught that. But the word he uses is God makes the Israelites turn around and start walking 
back toward Egypt and back toward the Red Sea. He sort of pins them in against the sea, which is a foolish strategy. But we're told immediately why God does that. He wants Pharaoh to reach a wrong conclusion, that the Israelites don't know what they're doing, that they're wandering around aimlessly. And then, just to ensure that this plan is going to work, he hardens Pharaoh's heart again. So that, as it says in Exodus 14, 4, the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. Now, what possesses Pharaoh to so easily forget what God just did? I don't know. Like, God just destroyed the firstborn all throughout Egypt. And what possessed Israel or Pharaoh to be like, what have we done? Let's go get them back. Did he so easily forget? I don't know. Other than somehow the death of firstborns was a knockdown, but not a knockout. And I think if we're being honest and we consider our own lives, we do the same thing. We see the hand of God in a transcendent way, whether we're a Christian or not. We have these moments, these moments, these portals of transcendence of the divinity. And it becomes so real. And then something happens, a week goes by, we don't feel it, and we utterly write it off as if it never happened. Or God, perhaps we are followers of Jesus, and God comes through in an unbelievable way. Like we talked about with miracle, the category of the miracle last week, uh, that it's not necessarily defies the natural, it works through the natural, but the way it works, how it works, the timing that it works is so coincidental You're like, there's gotta be a connection. But God comes through and we know it. We see it as the hand of God. And then a week later, what are we doing? He's forsaken me. He's forsaken me. We do this. There are layers of stubbornness that God has to break down before we're truly broken and willing to surrender. And the other key point for this, and I kind of made mention of it a little earlier, this chapter, this story, of Israel passing through the Red Sea is as much salvation for Egypt as it is for Israel. It's salvation for both. It's salvation for both. And so we read further. Egypt is pursuing Israel toward the Red Sea because they think they're wandering aimlessly. And we're told as Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. And in great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt? You let us out here to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Just let us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Better to be a slave than to die in freedom. How can they say that? How can they say that? Did they not just see the death of the firstborns? Did they not just obey and put the blood over their doorframe such that everyone else's firstborns, human and animal, are dead and theirs are not? I don't know. Like, I would have seen that and been, okay, whoever this God is, I'm in. I'm all in. But not them. Not them. They have been wandering and they reach this conclusion where they see the Egyptians pursuing and they're like, what the heck did you do, Moses? Israel has still not learned that God is the only reality. 
And that God is bigger than what their circumstances appear to be. And God is good. And when you look in a couple thousand years later, they're in good company. <laughs> if you ever read the story of Jesus' disciples, man, it seems like the disciples just progressively get worse and worse throughout Jesus' ministry. There's actually a story, or two stories, um, which I alluded to earlier, but there's a, Jesus is teaching 5,000 men, we're told, which means there's more women and children, and he wants to feed them, and they have no food to feed them. And so the disciples are like, we don't have enough money, we don't have any food, I don't know what you want to do. Jesus goes, well, what do, you, what do you have? Bring me what you have. And so they find a boy that has a basket of five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus starts blessing them and multiplying it. And he feeds everyone. He feeds them all, and there's 12 basketfuls left over from one basket of five loaves and two fish. And I'm sure the disciples were like, what in the world just happened? <laughs> but then we're told, just a couple chapters later, that this time Jesus is teaching a, a, a mass of about 4,000 people. And the same thing happens. The same thing happens where they're like, let's feed them. We don't have any food. The disciples are like, what should we do? And I'm sure Jesus is like, were you there just a couple weeks back? Like, what, what were you watching? What, what happened? Where was the disconnect? And he does the same thing. He multiplies bread and fish, and this time there are seven basketfuls left over. Now, this is so staggering of like mental dullness that some scholars say it's the same story, which is handed down in two traditions. But there are enough details, enough variances, that other scholars are like, no, it, it sounds like two different stories. The disciples were just really dumb. And me knowing myself and my faith, I go, yeah, I go for the latter. I'm pretty dumb. I know how I am in relationship with God, and yeah, that makes sense. I definitely would have missed it. What was it for Israel that they just saw the hand of God through 10 plagues, and in this moment, they're freaking out? Other than we are so stuck in our systems of thinking, and we're so stuck in what is normal, and what is logical, and the patterns of what's comfortable and easy, that we don't wanna make that transition. And the second thing that comes out of, I think, why Israel uh, was unable, or why they grew so afraid, slavery is easier than freedom. I think we all know that. Slavery is easier than freedom. Addiction is easier than sobriety. It's far, far easier. <laughs> I know statistics show that many of us in this room are addicted to something. I definitely am. The point of the gospel is we're all addicts. If we're not addicted to substances, we're addicted to ourselves. we're addicted to career, we're addicted to something. But addiction is much easier than sobriety. Loneliness, even though you, you hate it, you bemoan it, loneliness is easier than risking vulnerability with another, isn't it? It is. It sucks, but we have our little. It's okay. After you've been hurt, not loving again and not being hurt is a lot easier than taking that risk and loving again. Hatred, hatred is much easier than forgiveness. Hold a grudge. Oh, it's so much easier. You have that power. You can, it, it might be eating you alive, but you have it. It's yours. It's mine. Slavery is much easier than freedom. Selfishness is easier than selfless love. 
See, what we find, friends, is that this, there's an illusion in this story and in our stories. And the illusion is of self-determinacy, that we are autonomous creatures. We are free. We are free, unencumbered of any relationship. We are free in and of ourselves. And the illusion of self-determinacy is still a Nevada. You're still a, a Nevada. You still have a master. But your master is yourself, and your master enslaves you. But that is much easier than being an avad toward God, which is more like being a child and an heir in the father's house. And I've quoted this before, but I think it's so um, perfect for our, our passage today. C.S. Lewis, we are half-hearted creatures. We fool about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's as if God is coming along to Israel and to you saying, hey, put down the mud pies. I got something great for you. And you're like, oh, no, but I have these mud pies. You're like, no, no, no. But there's a holiday at sea. There's a freedom. You're gonna discover true adventure and true life in a way that you haven't. Yeah, but who's going to make these mud pies? These are my mud pies, right? That's what we all do. We have this illusion that we are free and all we have are little pebbles in our hands when the story God is saying is, put those down, put those down and follow me and you're going to have so much more. Slavery is easier than freedom and that's what you see the Israelites expressing. Or as uh, John Milton Satan said in Paradise Lost, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Oh, it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Even though reigning in hell is terrible. Hell is the worst. But I get to reign there. No one tells me what to do. Rather than to acknowledge your true identity as a creation of the creator and to say, all right, you tell me who I am, Lord, and be treated like a child of the living God. But freedom is hard, friends. Acknowledging, acknowledging that you will always be an avad. You will always be a servant of something or someone. That's really hard. So it's better to deceive yourself into thinking you're free than to actually speak truthfully, which is what the gospel's all about. The gospel's trying to create in us the ability to speak truthfully. I was having a conversation with a, a friend the other day and we were talking about my soccer league versus his basketball league. And this was the perfect contrast of what's going on here. So my soccer league is an adult league and most of the time it's a lot of fun. But we had a game the other day, which was no fun at all. Um, we, and I don't wanna like troll or anything, but we had a guy show up who thought he was Cristiano Ronaldo. And um, he wasn't, but he thought he was. And consequently, he just made things so hard for the rest of us. He was yelling at his teammates, he's getting angry. He was playing dirty and chippy with the other team. So the other team was playing dirty and chippy back. And it culminated at the end of the game where one of our guys uh, tackled another player legally. And the player was so angry because this had been bottling up the entire game. He shoved our player to the ground. Both benches cleared. And I'm thinking, this is adult league. We all suck out here. Like none of us are good. <laughs> 
And like, this is not fun anymore. Contrast that to my friend's basketball league, which pretty much the premise for this league is you're admitting when you're showing up that you're not good at basketball. And I think it's like called Never Too Late or something. So yeah, it's awesome. So he goes, there are people like myself who just didn't grow up playing basketball. So I show him, like, yeah, I suck at basketball. And he goes, there are 60-year-old women who are there because they want to play basketball with their grandchildren. And he says, it's the most fun you ever had. Gospel versus hell. I'm not joking. The illusion of Egypt is we all think we're really good soccer players. When the truth of the world is we all suck. And if we are able to speak truthfully and say, I am a bad soccer player. I'm a bad basketball player. You are? Me too. And then God can come along and go, let me teach you how to be a good one. And we experience joy unlike anything we've ever seen. But it starts with the admission of, hey, I'm an addict. Hey, I'm really, really lonely. Hey, I'm addicted to this. Hey, I I hate myself. I really am sad in life. Hey, fill in the blank. It starts with speaking truthfully in the world. If Christians are anything, we should be the most truthful speakers because we have nothing to fear. Because there's nothing. The whole premise of this story is that it, salvation doesn't come from us. It comes from our God. But we're not truthful speakers many times. We believe the lies and we start creating the facades and the illusions of self-determinacy or we think it's based on our own morality, our own doing the right things or not doing the right things. And so we end up creating spaces where we hide from one another. What if we all showed up and we had a sign over the door? It's like, you come in and you are confessing that you are a bad human being. I am bad. I've talked about this before. G.K. Chesterton in this really witty line. um, The the London Times were sending out questions. They were filling an op-ed piece. And the question is, what's wrong with the world? And he sent back and he goes, dear sirs and madam, I am sincerely yours, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. Why can't we say that? Christians should say that. What's wrong with the world? Right here. I am. I can also tell you what's right with the world. And it's the creator. And he's doing some incredible things. That's the illusion. That's what's going on. But Israelites still haven't learned that yet. They still haven't learned that their circumstances are not the final um, judge of, of what God is able to do. And so they see the Egyptians coming. They see the Egyptians pursuing and they, they freak out. And they list, they list these reasonable objections. They have cynical humor. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt, Moses? You couldn't just leave us there to die? And they go like, we told you. We told you, they just, they rail on him. They rail on him. And Moses, Moses responds as God will always respond to everyone, anytime, anyplace. They list the reasonable objections. There are no graves, we called this. Our lives were terrible. You should have just left us in Egypt. At least we had bread. At least we had control. We had our mud pies. Yeah, they, they weren't that great, but we had them. And Moses hears this, and he hears sort of the vitriol being levied on him. And his response, friends, notice, he doesn't 
accuse them back. He looks them in the eye and he goes, hey, friends, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. All these things you're saying are excuses. I know what's really going on. At the core of your soul, there's fear. You're afraid. Fear is at the center of our stories. Fear is at the center of Egypt. Fear. We are all so terribly afraid of everything. (laughs) Of everything. We are so afraid. And the words of God through Moses, both in Exodus and you see it throughout all of his story, he goes, hey, hey guys, don't be afraid. You don't have to be. I'm actually a really good God. I know you're, you're freaking out right now. It's okay. Don't be afraid. See, God is saving Israel and Egypt from the lies that they've been told and they've told themselves from the day they were born. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I'm sure you've had these moments where you've experienced transcendence or you've heard this story and the, the core of you says there is something super compelling. There is something true about this. But then what happens? Then the lies just start going, Egypt inside and Egypt outside, just start talking. And you start asking these questions of like, well, what does that mean about my friends and my family who aren't Christians? And you start asking these lists of good questions, but really what's going on? God would look you in the eye and say, hey, you don't have to be afraid. I'll answer all those questions, but right now, stop fearing. Stop fearing. And for the Christians in the room, we definitely know what it's like Like the Israelites, we have these moments with God. We see God come through, but then time passes and Egypt gets loud outside and the world goes on and we forget, we forget. And then we try to like live into this relationship and God would look at each one of us and say over and over and over again, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. I did not create you to fear. I created you to dance. I created you to worship fearlessly. I created you to feast with one another. I created you to know that at the core of who you are is me, is goodness, is truthfulness, is light. I did not create you to fear and you don't have to be afraid, don't worry, I'm gonna do it. And Moses continues, he says, don't be afraid, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord that he will do for you today because the Egyptians whom you see today you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to keep still. And it's an interesting translation of keep still. The Hebrew is actually harash, which which means shut up. Be silent, shut up. So Moses is saying, the Lord's, you don't have to be afraid. The Lord's gonna fight for you. Just shut up. Who needs to hear that today? Just shut up. God's got you. God's got you. Do you not remember? Have you not seen? Just shh, just be quiet. Don't be afraid. Fear is much louder than the voice of God. Shh. And then we get to the paradox of the paradigm, but very central. Then the Lord said to Moses, Moses had just said to the Israelites, don't be afraid, just stand firm. The Lord's gonna fight for you. Be quiet. 
And then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? (laughs) Tell the Israelites to go forward. But you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And then the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. And so I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Well, what is it? Shut up or move forward? Yes. Both. This is God's story. God is doing the action. God is doing the action through us. We make ourselves available. And the paradox is that God does it, but we have a part to play. If anything, the process works like this. We speak, or rather, we see God do something, and it terrifies us. And then we start yammering on and on, like, what was that, what was that, I don't understand, you know, I'm terrified. And God goes, shh, don't be afraid. Now do this. And we take a step of obedience. Even in the New Testament, friends, When Jesus calls people into relationship with himself, he doesn't do it through, like, do you accept me into your heart or something? What does he always say? Follow me. A very literal, and in many trans, or many, um, in Mark at least, uh, it says, it doesn't say the word, it's a different word. It's not follow me, but it's actually come behind me. As in, get in line and start walking where I'm walking. Don't worry about your fears. Don't worry about your questions. They're all gonna be answered. You're allowed to have those doubts and those questions. But be quiet and actually believe what the core of your heart is saying. Get behind me and follow me. Take a step of obedience. And we see this concept of the mediator. The mediator. Moses speaks to the people on behalf of God. And so to the people, he looks like God. But then God speaks to Moses as the representative of of the people. So the mediator is simultaneously divine and human and is bringing together of God with Israel. So before the people, he looks like the voice of God. And before God, he's a representative of the people. Well, if we go on with this idea of truth and lies, only God knows the true story of this world. But we live in a world of lies. And we all know that. We are liars, every one of us. We live in a world caked in lies. But the mediator is both God and man. And because he is God, he can speak the truth. And because he is man, we can understand him. So the mediator is tasked with speaking the true story to the Israelites. The mediator is tasked with speaking truth to you and I. Hold on to that. And so God tells Moses, all right, don't cry out to me. Tell the Israelites to move forward. Here's what's gonna happen. And we get to the defining moment. This is, friends, like the peak of the story. So Exodus, you have some crucial moments on both ends of the story. We've talked about God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. We've talked about the plagues and the death of the firstborn. We're gonna talk about the giving of the law and we're gonna talk about the building of the tabernacle, some defining moments to come, but they're almost like a mountain and they're building up, and right here is the defining moment. This is the peak, this is the central, this is the crux of the story, and everything revolves around it. The cloud divided Egypt from Israel, and Moses stretched out his staff, and the sea retreated, and Israel passed through on dry land with waters on their left and waters on their right. 
the Egyptians pursued. God threw them into a confusion. He clogged their chariot wheels and they panicked. They fled. Moses stretched out his hand. The sea returned to its normal level and the Egyptians drowned. Israel saw them wash up on the shore and saw that not one of them remained. And Israel was saved by the Lord because they shut their mouths and they walked through the water. The Israelites have now passed the point of no return. Some scholars call it the liminal space, the liminal space. The liminal space is a boundary between two domains that must be traversed if one is to enter into a new mode of being. The waters were that boundary. Before then, they still had the possibility of returning back to Egypt. Now they don't because they see the Egyptians washed dead on the seashore. There is no going back. They've passed through the waters and they are effectively saying that their life and death and their identity is wrapped up with this God and this God's mediator. If this God perishes or if this God is wrong, we all die. And what we'll find out is if we all die, this God dies too. The two are interconnected. There's a transfer of possession. In a sense, both God and Israel have pushed all their chips on the table and they're saying, we're all in. We're all in. Israel has formed a covenant with Yahweh. I know covenant might seem strange to our modern ears, but it's a really beautiful, beautiful and, and powerful promise. In Genesis 15, which is the book right before Exodus, we're told about Abraham, who's the father of the Israelite people. And as God is starting to speak to Abraham and make promises that from him is gonna become a great nation. And this great nation is gonna be his chosen people. And God's gonna save Israel for the sake of all the nations. Not for Israel's own sake, but they are gonna be an instrument for all the nations. And, the, and there comes a moment, there's a chapter in chapter 15 where, where um, God forms a covenant. He cuts a covenant with, with uh, Israel. And actually the word that's usually used in Hebrew is katav, which means to cut. So he cuts a covenant. And the way it works is he tells Abraham to take animals, and he lists out various animals and cut them in half. I know it's a little brutal. But he cuts them in half and they put them on opposite sides. And then God, as a fire, as a fiery torch, a fire, fire brand, passes through the animals. And what that means, to cut a covenant, there is a division of things, normally united, which stands as a symbol of the unification of entities, of things, previously divided. So because Abraham cut these animals, which are normally one thing, and walked through them, that's symbolizing that now God and Abraham, which were originally divided, are now one. They are united. And we see the same thing here. We're told twice in the passage that Israel walked through the waters on the right and on the left. In a sense, they formed a covenant with God. They formed a covenant by saying, our fate is wrapped up with yours. God lifts up the humble and crushes the proud. Those who think they're good soccer players, he shows they're really not. 
and those who know they're bad basketball players, they have the time of their lives. See, the reality is we all are terrible at being human beings. There's a category called human being, and it was intended to, to be lived in a certain way, a certain unity with the creator, but we, we've all done it poorly. In fact, there was one who did it really, really well, so well that everyone was stunned by him. Uh, the Israelites, the Romans, everyone was just stunned. But the Egyptians drowned that night. The Egyptians drowned because their chariot wheels were clogged. That's what it says. The text says their chariot wheels were clogged. What's so interesting about that is the chariot was the premier militaristic invention, technology. So much so that even a couple hundred years later, in Solomon's time, the chariot was still like the, the premier militaristic technology. And their, what gave them their strength is what ended up being their downfall. The strength of Egypt became why it died, which definitely recalls us back a couple chapters earlier where Moses is talking with God and God ends his conversation by saying, hey Moses, your staff, don't forget it. Don't forget your staff because this is the God who saves through weakness. In God's paradigm, our weakness saves us. Our strength destroys us. Israel passed through the waters empty-handed, saved by God. And Egypt was destroyed that night because they trusted in their own power, their own self-determinacy. I wanna invite the, uh, the worship team back up here. And we're calling it the paradigm, and as you were walked in today, you were handed a card. And the card says, baptism, I wanna be baptized, or I wanna learn more. You might be wondering, well, why? Well, because the series is called The Paradigm. In Romans 6, which we just read earlier in, in today, Paul likens our sinful nature to Egypt. Paul likens our sinful nature to being enslaved. And, and we talked about sin, um, the Greek word hamartano simply means to fall short, to fall short of what we were created to be. And so Paul says that we live in a world where we speak untruthfully, where we're all enslaved to Egypt. And he paints this broad picture, this broad picture of a broken world where there's rebelliousness and there's brokenness everywhere. And there's fear, fear inside and fear outside. And Paul goes, in this world, there came a mediator. There came another one. And this one was fully God. So he spoke truth in a way we had never heard. And he was fully man. So we could actually understand him. And he died like a lamb without lifting up his voice. But because God has returned and done something irrevocable to the cosmos, like light has pierced back into the center of the earth and it's slowly illuminating it again. And now Paul says, for all those who see that, for all those who turn their faces toward this mediator Jesus, they pass through the waters with him. They remain avads. They still remain servants, but in a different way. Jesus says, you're actually gonna be more like an heir in my father's house. You all are. You're all gonna be sons and daughters of the living God. And we hear this truth and what happens? Fear clamors. Fear just starts up. Questions abound. Well, what about this? And what about this? 
And what about this when I did that? And what about when this was done to me? How, how can this be true? How can this story be true? And Jesus looks at each one of us and goes, hey, shh, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'll answer all those questions right now. Listen to what the core of your heart is telling you and follow me. And our weapons and our strength and our reasons, which we clutch to, we drop and we shut our mouths and we enter into the waters and we pass the liminal space. We pass the boundary. We're not home yet. Notice Israel, when they passed through the waters, they weren't home, they're still in the desert, but they've transferred possession of their lives. In the waters, they've said that we are no longer Egypt's possession, we're now Yahweh's. In the waters, we as Christians say that we are no longer anyone else's possession, not the world's, not my own possession. I am Christ. If Christ lives, I live. If Christ dies, I die. My very existence is wrapped up with this mediator. And he promises me that he's good. And when I look at his story, I can see a goodness which I don't see anywhere else. But I don't know for sure. I walk in the desert with him. In this mysterious and powerful moment where we die to Egypt and the waters happens. And we rise with the one who says, I'll go before you. I'll teach you how to be a real human. You can speak truthfully for the rest of your life. You can speak truthfully. We all just wanna speak truthfully. You can now. So I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're from. I don't know if you were baptized as a child or if you've never been baptized, but the invitation for you, for everyone here is the same. If there is something in your heart today which is stirred that says, I need to explore this step. I need to explore what baptism is. And maybe you're not ready to say, I wanna be baptized. Maybe you just wanna say, I wanna learn more. Cool. Check the box. Put your name in your email and I'll be in touch with you. I know fear is gonna talk Egypt outside, Egypt inside. They're gonna ramble on and on. They're gonna be louder. But today, if you hear that stirring, if you sense it, shut out the fears. Just, just shut up and listen. We're gonna take communion together as a community. And the reason why we do is to remind ourselves week in and week out that we come to the mediator's table, the father's table, which the mediator has opened up to us. And as we sing and as we take communion together, I would encourage everyone here to do some soul searching. What are you afraid of? Where is fear defining your life? Which means where is this story, the story of God who goes before us, where is it not defining our life? If the step is baptism, step into it. Step into it full of fear. I'm sure the Israelites were terrified and quivering as they walked through the waters. Doesn't mean you don't have to be afraid. It means you don't allow fear to get the final word. So step into it.